Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. Revelation 4, we've come this far in our study of this amazing book, this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with our move into chapter 4 here tonight, we've concluded our study of the letters to the churches, and we come now into the third section of the book. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, we read, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Three sections in the book of Revelation. So first, John wrote of the things that he saw presently, which was the description of the glorified, risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And so he describes him in the first part of the book. John is given the amazing privilege of not only encountering Jesus, but then he's to write of the things which he had seen. And so he describes Jesus and then he passes out. Isn't that awesome? Like the beginning of this book begins with John seeing, seeing Jesus, describing him to us, and then it's too much for him, and he just he passes out at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus comes to him, John says, it was as if I was dead. And Jesus comes and he touches him and he says, do not be afraid. And then he says to him, you are to write the things which are. And so that carries us then into the letters to the churches and And so from there, Jesus instructs John on the things which are to be shared with these churches. He penned the seven letters to the churches. These were real letters to real churches with real issues. But also, they were issues that we have seen throughout church history and even still today. So there's modern application uh, based on these letters. And then even we see within the churches, uh, of course, many debate this, but there seems to be this symbol of or this symbolic uh, aspect of even church history that the letters sort of follow the church age and different phases in church history and so those are the things that are and now we come into chapter 4 and we begin to look forward to the things which shall take place after this so the remainder of our study of revelation from chapter 4 all the way through the end Uh, with the exception of one little portion that sort of looks back, uh, we'll be looking forward. It's prophetic in nature. These are about events that are yet to happen. And so this entire third portion of the text is divided into three parts itself. We'll see in chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 19, verse 21. So from 4-1 through 19-21, we're going to have the tribulation period. So a lot to cover here as it pertains to the time of the tribulation. And then in chapter 20, in verses 1 through 15, we'll see the millennium or the millennial reign. And then in chapters 21, verse 1 through 22, 21, the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. So beginning then in chapter 4, we are moving into the time of the tribulation. 
But what's super cool here is that while the unfolding of the tribulation and what John sees here will be glimpses of the greatest suffering that the world will ever see, as much and as horrific as has been so many events throughout the history of the world, they will pale in comparison to what will be experienced during the time of the tribulation. And though John is going to see into this, and he's going to write of this, what he's given first is a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. You could say that John, in light of what he was about to see, was given first a heavenly perspective so that he could rightly see then what was happening on earth and why. And this, because of this perspective that he was given and because he was instructed to write it down, it serves as a benefit for us as well. So the heavenly perspective that John receives should serve to benefit us as well. What do I mean by that? Well, what we are going to see specifically this week and then next week in chapters 4 and 5 is a vision, as I've mentioned, of the throne room of heaven and of God the Father, of Jesus the Son, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what we are seeing here is really an incredible praise and worship event that's happening there in heaven, and and it's happening in the midst of a time of incredible tribulation on the earth. Now, it's important to understand then, because of this, that this then is not a vision of a God who is sort of aloof to the suffering that's happening on the earth, but rather of a God who is sovereign over it. Okay, A God who who knows, a God who is at work, a God who has a plan, and a God who is to be worshipped, even in the midst of great trial. You see what I'm laying down? Corey Ten Boom, many of you know of her. Corey Ten Boom is one whose family hid Jews during the Holocaust, and she was imprisoned for it. Once said, There is no panic in heaven, God has no problems, only plans understand that that's a heavenly perspective there is no panic in heaven god has no problems only plans i wonder if for us tonight that alone is enough of a truth to bring some needed perspective to our own circumstances right to think about some of the things that may even be going on in your own life presently that are not to be diminished from the sense of, oh, these things just don't matter, but rather to look at such things and to say, God's not freaking out right now. God's not freaking out. God has a plan. Right? He knows. Revisit a verse we've frequented as of late, Romans 8.28, that God is working all things together for good those who love Him. 
Right? The reality that as we surrender our lives to Him, as we walk in obedience to His Word, as we surrender our lives to Him, we can trust that even the craziest of circumstances in our life can be used for His glory to bring about the, the, the conforming of us to His glory, to prepare us for glory. That God is using all these things for good. And this is what a heavenly perspective does. It's what a heavenly perspective should do. We're challenged over and over again in Scripture to to fix our eyes upon Him, to seek the things of heaven, to look to the heavenlies, to look up. We're told that he who keeps his mind stayed on Him will be kept in perfect peace. We're told over and over and over again that we're to have an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective. Robert Mounts writes, Since events on earth have their origin in heaven, the heavenly ascent is not unexpected. A true insight into history is gained only when we view all things from the vantage point of the heavenly throne. Imagine the understanding that you'll have when you can look upon history and upon the world from the vantage point of heaven. And so tonight and next week then, our aim is to gain some heavenly perspective. And as we do, as we seek to join John on his journey, as it were, grateful for his spirit-led description, what we'll find is that true perspective is gained when the Godhead comes into view. And when we see things from the vantage of heaven, and to do so then, once we have such perspective, what we will also see is that the only response then is worship. To know Him, to know Him in the sense of of a heavenly perspective is to worship Him. And that's what we see unfold here in the chapters before us. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After these things, so again, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And so after the last letter to the churches, John looks up, he sees a door open to heaven and a voice, it's that of Jesus, saying, Come up here. Now, is the rapture of the church specifically in view here? Not necessarily, but it, sure, it surely aligns quite well and seems to give us an incredible parallel if it's not absolutely intended. Because at the end of the church age, and we'll see this play out further, at the end of the church age, Jesus Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the church believers will be caught up to meet Him in the air. It's what Paul tells the church in Thessalonica. And that is the rapture of the church. Now the view of the rapture, or this view of the rapture rather, is a pre-tribulation view of the rapture. Meaning, it happens before the tribulation. The rapture happens before the tribulation, really just like it does for John here as he comes to, in effect, the end of the church age, and then the voice of Jesus calls to him, saying, come up. Now, what we'll also see here 
as we start to make our way into this portion of the book, is that the church, which has been spoken of and considered frequently up to this point, is not seen on earth again in Revelation until Revelation chapter 19, where it's referenced indirectly as the bride in chapter 19, verse 7. So following the account of the throne room in heaven in chapter 4 and the worship of the Lamb in chapter 5, we begin to unfold into the time of the tribulation, the opening of the seals, the first half of the tribulation, and then the pouring out of the bowls, the second half of the tribulation. And during that time, the church is not mentioned. And then even during this time, as people are saved, as I do believe that some people will be saved during the time of the tribulation, I think Scripture makes that quite clear, those who are saved are referred to consistently as either the Israelites who are saved or the Gentiles that are saved. The church is noticeably absent during this entire period. Moreover, like we saw in the letters to the churches, at the end of each letter where it said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll see some of that phrasing again, but it will simply be, He who has an ear, let him hear. Not what the Spirit says to the churches, but what's simply being communicated to those who are lost and on earth experiencing a time of terrible tribulation. And so I would say that I do not believe that the church, believers today, will go through the tribulation period. And I think that what we see here happening with John and what happens then is he continues to provide a description absent the church. What we see is uh, a pattern for a pre-tribulation rapture. And the Bible speaks also of two phases of Christ's return. One aspect of His return is in the air and is secretive, like a thief in the night, not for the world to see. I believe that is the rapture of the church. While the other aspect of His coming is in power and glory for all to see and the church with Him. Now, if those two events are one in the same, then that means that the church will endure the tribulation and be caught up in the clouds and will pull an immediate U-turn, will meet Jesus in the air and immediately come back down with Him at the end of the tribulation. Now, if these two events are distinct and separated by a time of tribulation, then this fits a pre-tribulation rapture and certainly explains then the absence of the church in these chapters in Revelation. And Jesus himself gave insights to this in parables during his ministry on earth. And he spoke of Noah in the flood. He spoke of Sodom and Gomorrah when he was giving insight into these times. And as he spoke to these times, what you see is always a pattern first of a prophetic warning, then God removing his people, and then judgment coming upon the rest of the earth. And so rapture, I believe, will come, and then the beginning of the judgment as God pours out His wrath upon an unbelieving people, and I think that's what we begin to see here in Revelation. So John is taken up, in effect, verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit, 
And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So John was seized by the Spirit. We know not exactly how or what this looked like. Uh, Was he actually there? Was he translated somehow? Was this sort of just a vision in the Spirit? We don't know. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, of his own experience given uh, a heavenly vision. And Paul says there that uh, whether it was in the body or out of the body, he wasn't exactly sure. But he knows that he was given perspective. He was given a vision. He, was, he had an experience. And so John experiences this revelation in the Spirit, and the first thing he sees is a throne. Now the word throne is used 45 times in Revelation, and it's very much a focal point of the letter. I think it's only used 15 other times throughout the New Testament. So it gives you a sense of how much Revelation is focused on the throne in the throne room. And so John does not tell us exactly who is sitting on the throne. He says there is one who is seated on the throne. But based on the description that we see here in chapter 4, especially compared to what we see in chapter 5, it would seem that he is attempting to describe God the Father. We know that Jesus has already been given a description and is glorified and is in a human form of sorts in heaven. And then in chapter 5, we're going to see how the, 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 the lamb becomes a lion. And, uh, and so it would seem that here in chapter 4, he's focusing specifically on God the Father. Furthermore, depending on your translation, if it says the one who sat or the one sitting, in the original Greek here, the tense would speak of someone who is who is and who has continually occupied the throne. And so it certainly seems as if God the Father is in view here, and to describe him is a difficult task. Much of of, of revelation here We're grateful for the power of the Holy Spirit to help John in describing what it is that he sees. And and it's going to get a whole lot trippier right? as we move further on in Revelation. And there's a lot of different theories as to what John was actually seeing and trying to make sense of. But here he's he's trying to describe God. And, And indeed, this is a difficult task. And probably the reason that John does not write that it was God... You know, hey, th- this, is, this is God that I'm seeing, but rather here's one who is seated on the throne. And don't forget what Paul had said about God. And specifically in First and Second Timothy, he gives a little bit of insight here. Paul writes, God is eternal, immortal, and invisible. He says that he dwells in unapproachable light. We know based off of the Old Testament that to look upon him in a fallen state is to mean your death. So John's taken a lot in right now as he's given this vision right and so he begins to describe him the best that he can he says the one who sat on the throne is first described as like a jasper and a sardius stone now jasper is described later on in revelation we'll see this again in chapter 21 and it's described there further as a precious stone that is clear like crystal so this seems to be more of a description of what we might liken to, to say uh, uh, as a diamond. Maybe there's an aspect here of a diamond-like stone that light is coming out of. It's having a prism effect. There could be many colors that are sort of radiating 
from the throne. And then he says Sardius. Now Sardius is red. So you get the sense here that there's sort of this clear stone light emanating from it and a red stone light emanating from that somehow. Some suggest that the red stone then, or, or the, the, uh, the jasper, sort of speaking of this sense of purity, and then red giving us a picture of the purity that comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, what's cool about these two stones is that... Uh, these stones are stones that were representative of some of the tribes of Israel, specifically these two stones. So the priest, uh, they would have 12 stones on their breastplate as they ministered in the temple. And each of the stones were representative of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And these particular stones, the Jasper stone, represented the first tribe of Reuben, and the Sardius stone was that of Benjamin, the last. These two stones, the first and the last. Right. Reuben meaning, behold, a son, Benjamin, son of my right hand. Okay. And so there's a lot of significance in these things. And, and again, there's great color around the throne. Um, and there's a rainbow so he describes this rainbow that has this emerald glow to it. But the rainbow is all the way around the throne. It's not a rainbow that's seemingly uh, like what we see where it starts to sort of disappear and you're like, oh, I wonder where the end of the rainbow is. And, and the rainbow here, because it's all the way around the throne, we know then that it has, it has no beginning or end. Okay? And so the, the, the rainbow we know in Scripture is a reminder uh, of God's faithfulness as in the day of Noah and this promise that he would not uh, flood the earth again. And, and so this is what we can gather from this, a sense of, uh, this is a sign of God's faithfulness and the rainbow in its, in its totality, a full circle, neither beginning nor end, just like his faithfulness. He is absolutely faithful. He is absolutely true. And I think it's an interesting thing too, the ways in which so many things in our culture and, and, and other cultures throughout history have sort of latched onto different things in, in the rainbow, right? Um, what have you learned throughout maybe growing up that you'd find if you could just find the end of the rainbow? A pot of gold, right? It's got to be out there somewhere at the end of the rainbow and a little, a little leprechaun. And uh, what we see here rather is that nope, there's no end. In fact, it's encircling the throne of God, right? Um, it encircles the, the totality of the, of, the, of the Godhead. And um, I just find that interesting, that the, the, the fascination with rainbows throughout history. And here we see in Scripture it, it come into view, into its proper view. Daniel Aiken writes then of this heavenly scene. He says, put, put them all together. Put together everything that John has seen here in the throne room. And he says, you have a vision of God's majesty. You have a vision of God's splendor, of His glory and His faithfulness. He's beyond description and appearance and utterly reliable in His promises. He is awesome, magnificent, transcendent, and spectacular. There is no God like our God. Do we think about God in this way? It's difficult for us to. For John... Because he lived beyond this point for a little while longer. You better believe he didn't 
forget. He didn't forget. This, this, this vision was ingrained in him. And, and not only did he no doubt constantly think of the things that he had seen and the, just the greatness of God there in the, in the throne room of heaven, but no doubt he began to look forward to it. I'm going to see that again. I want to experience that again. And I just wonder for us, because it is difficult for us to comprehend all of this, but I trust that if we were to grasp or certainly when we experience it, because we will, that it will captivate us, right? It will captivate us. It will demand our attention. And, and things do today. We get glimpses of it today, don't we? Think about some things, good things, things that you're like, man, Lord, this is like all of creation testifying to who you are. There's, I hope that there's been some experiences in your life where you thought, whoa, that's powerful. For me, a more recent one was when we went to the Grand Canyon. I told you guys a little bit about that when we got back from our trip. And those that have seen the Grand Canyon, I hope that you would agree. Now, when you go up to the Grand Canyon, right, the whole, most of the time that you're driving, even when you're walking up to it, it's just not, you don't see it at least where we went from the, the area that we went, it's just trees and trees and trees. And even as you go up to the park and then you start to make your way out, you're like, I haven't seen it yet. And there was part of us that started to think, well, this is going to be like a letdown, like the Grand Canyon. You know, and we're gonna, we haven't even seen the thing yet. We're like, where is it, right? And we're going to get up there and be like, oh, okay, well, there it is, right? No. When we came around the corner and we saw that thing, it was like, Whoa. This is absolutely incredible. And I needed to. I needed to just stand there for a while. And we, was, we spent two and a half, three days there. And I just kept wanting to just stand there and keep looking. I didn't want to do much. I just like, no, I'm good. We could just sit here and just look for a while. And then we hiked down in and we're looking all along the way. I just wanted to. St- and then you take pictures, right? You're like, I got to have a picture of that. I got to have a picture of that. The pictures are terrible. You get back and you look at it and you're like, ah. But it captivated me. It captivated me. It got my attention. It was powerful. And I think to myself, Lord, i got to think that this is way beyond that. Does, does that excite you? And then I start to think a little bit, like what things, what, things are, what things on a regular basis are captivating my attention? Stuff that's just so insignificant. I mean, I'm notorious. You don't do this anymore. At least, I, at least I, I don't know how long it's been since I have. But a movie store, you remember those? Yeah, like a blockbuster, family video. <clears throat> and I was notorious for going in, and Ashley and I go in, and we were looking for a movie, right? And she'd lose me. Where was I? They'd have the movie up on the screen, and I'm just like, she's like, you're ridiculous. Can we, can we get a video and go home and watch it? And I'm like, sorry. I just, I, uh, you know? It's like a bug light, right? And that's just stupid. I mean, it's probably half the time it was probably something ridiculously stupid. It just, uh, gets your attention. And I don't know, that's a picture for me, but how often does that happen? Lord, what's captivating my attention? Might God get more of our attention today? Might there be, might there be a way in which we could give him more of our attention? And how do we do that? How does he captivate us more? As we seek Him in His Word, as we spend time with Him in prayer, as we consider more and more who He is, as we give ourselves to, to the fellowship of the church and to time in worship, 
And then as we do, as we begin to exalt Him more, because we know Him more, well, it becomes this, really, when we consider this pattern of discipleship, exalt, equip, engage, it's really a circular pattern. It just kind of keeps going around, right? You know Him more. You, as you know Him, you worship Him. As you spend time with Him, you're equipped. And as you're equipped, you go out and you engage. And as you engage, it grows your faith. And you, you find yourself just going right back to exaltation and just worshiping more and more because you think, God, you're so good. And you use me in this way. And you just worked in this person's life. And it's just this process of continually coming back to Him. And, and so to know Him more is to worship Him more. And that's really what we see on display because here in verse 4, we begin to see that around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads and so he's got to be ready to pass out again because he's just like this is all too much but he sticks with it and and these these 24 thrones with 24 elders sitting on them there's debate of course who are these people some have said they're stars they look at it more from like some sort of uh cosmic perspective many say angels some say they're old testament saints some a blend of old testament saints new testament saints 12 representing the 12 tribes of israel 12 representing the apostles right um some say they're angelic representatives of the saints uh, of patriarchs and apostles representatives of the prophetic books of the old testament all sorts of theories have been put out there i think my opinion they are redeemed saints they are in fact elders of some form and they are representatives of the redeemed and and i think this because uh, if they're angelic beings of any kind i just don't see in scripture where angels are to be sitting on the thrones i don't see where angels are referred to as elders i don't see where angels are clothed in white as the redeemed i don't see where angels are given crowns these are stephanos crowns these are victors crowns so we see here then 24 elders clothed in white robes, and I believe they're the representative of the church. I think they are the redeemed. Jesus said to the church, that we considered this last week, of, of Laodicea, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. And so these are 24 lesser thrones, but nevertheless, those who are redeemed are seated upon them. And we see then here this heavenly scene, these elders sitting in white robes upon their thrones. And then verse 5, and and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We, We dealt with this early on in this letter. And what we'll see here too is we begin to see aspects of uh, the earthly tabernacle and temple represented here in the heavenlies. But as he's talking here about, about lightnings and thunderings, I can't help but think of Exodus 19 and the account of God descending there at Mount Sinai and, and thunder and lightning uh, were there and it caused the people to be afraid and sort of withdraw. And thunder and lightning, they're always indicative of his power, of his glory, They're often indicative of judgment. Thunder and lightning are always connected with scenes of God's presence, whether they're on Sinai or the tabernacle or the temple. And so because of that, then, it's important that we place in our mind the tabernacle that Moses built in the wilderness because we're told in the book of Hebrews that the tabernacle was actually a model of heavenly things. And so we can gain some understanding of what we're seeing here in the throne room of heaven based off of what we, we know of the, the tabernacle. And 
And if you want to know basically what heaven is going to look like, this throne room, again, you can go back and you can look at some of the instructions for the the tabernacle. And there in the tabernacle, when the priest came into the holy place, on the left-hand side, there was the seven candlesticks that came out of one base. And these seven golden candlesticks, we now know from Revelation earlier on, are representative of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Isaiah 11 too as well, that there is this sevenfold aspect of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so for us, in this context, is to know that the Spirit is present there in the throne room of heaven. So the Trinity, the full Godhead, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are present here in the throne room. And we remember then too that in the, in the uh, tabernacle is the Holy of Holies and there in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant that Moses made. It's covered with the golden lid, which was the mercy seat. And there upon the golden lid are the carved golden cherubim with their wings touching here in the Holy of Holies. And so then we look in verse 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass or a or something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So first here, the sea of glass, just quickly, this again rightly reads something like a sea of glass. And if we look again to the tabernacle for insight, we know that there was the bronze laver. It was a wash basin for cleansing. I don't don't know that this is... uh, truly the case but again if we look to the tabernacle for insight maybe this is significant in that here there's sort of a solid pure state such that the cleansing is finished it's accomplished it's done other people um, suggest that maybe this is it's like a sea but it's solid because the sea has been tamed the sea from a jewish culture perspective was always something that was kind of scary that it was a place of death um And so now it's just this beautiful, calm thing. We don't know for sure, but it's got to be pretty incredible here as John's looking out at this. And then, of course, are these living beings, these living creatures, which are, in my opinion, angelic beings, cherubim and seraphim like we see in Ezekiel and Isaiah's visions. There's four of them with eyes in front and in back, perhaps symbolizing the omniscience of God. Verse 7 describes them further. It says the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now this in and of itself is just like, whoa, man, this is, we're starting to get into some of the crazy stuff in Revelation. Like, how, like what are these things exactly? Now, some suggestions have been made regarding their specific descriptions. We can't be dogmatic on it, um, but there's there's some pretty solid perspectives, I think, here. One is that uh, these creatures are representative even of the fourfold manner in which Jesus is presented in the Gospels. So we know that um, in Matthew, Jesus is sort of presented as king, and we know that a lion sort of speaks to that aspect of kingship. Uh, Mark, uh, Jesus is presented as a a sacrifice. And um, we know that the calf is often the animal that's sacrificed. And Luke, of course, the emphasis of Jesus' humanity. And so then in this cherubim, we have the man, the face. And then in John, that Jesus, of course, is God, uh, focuses on his heavenly aspect. And the eagle is often used as a symbol of the heavenlies with its, its wings. 
or even independent of the Gospels, fairly similar, but that God is perfect in His authority, the lion perfect in His activity, the sacrificial calf or the servant, that He's perfect in His majesty, man being the chief of all creation, the glory of His creation, uh, and that He's perfect in His deity, uh, the eagle. And so there's some various perspectives on the descriptions of these creatures, but I think it's safe to say that these angelic creatures, that, that they certainly help to convey the significance of and the glory of God. And further, we see that in their own magnificence, as incredible as they are, they're worshiping Him without ceasing. Verse 8, the living, excuse me, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They do not cease to give Him praise. They don't stop. It suggests to us here that they never sleep. That these these Creatures are in an endless state of declaring His holiness. And when something is repeated three times in Scripture, sometimes we see it repeated twice, sometimes we see it repeated three times. And three times is really the superlative. And what that means in this case is it sort of declares that there is an infinite sense of God's holiness. It's infinite. And so they're here, they're celebrating His past holiness, who was, His present holiness, who is, and His future holiness, who is to come. There's a sense of Him being the beginning and the end, holy throughout, and they're dedicated to worshiping Him. And this should give us a sense of the magnificence of the Creator God. In verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. So these living creatures, they're giving glory, honor, thanks. So there's a sense of what He has done. And when they do this, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne. And so these representatives then of the church, the 24 elders who are on the throne wearing crowns, they recognize that all that they are, all that they have, everything about their being is because of Him. And so they are moved in this moment to withhold nothing from Him. And they fall from their thrones, cast their crowns before Him, and cry out, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. And so they declare to Him, You are the one who has created all things, and You are the one who sustains all things. That it's Your will and Your will alone that has brought all things into existence, and we're only here because of You. This begins to be the perspective that not that, not that John has been without, but he's getting full insight into all this now. He's seen all of this, and 
he's written it down, and now we have it here, and, and we have the ability to look at this and to say, this is what true worship looks like. This is what heavenly perspective should prompt. And then it's incumbent upon us to evaluate ourselves against the mirror of God's word and to say, is my life, is, is, does worship like this happen in my life? You might say, well, I, don't, I can't, where's the rainbow? And the amazing presence of God in this place. Maybe we need a fog machine to you know, spice it up a little bit. No. No, we don't. We can't, we can't manufacture it. Right? We can't. We can't manufacture all that. We can't make that happen here, but we can evaluate our hearts and we can ask ourselves, just like the example we're seeing here, do, do I have a heavenly perspective? And I'm a, am I aware that I'm only here and I only have breath in my lungs because there's one who has created all things and sustains all things and his hand is upon me and he has given me life. And because of that then, because of this God that I know and I want to know more, is there anything in my life that I'm holding back? Or am I falling off of my throne daily and casting my crowns before him and saying, God, you're worthy of it all? Is that my heart? And to say, in one day, I will experience this. In the Roman culture of the day, the emperor was to be greeted with, you are worthy. Do you know that? It was Domitian who declared, when I come, when I enter in, the people must declare, you are worthy. And he was, be, he was to be referred to as Lord and God. But believers, right, they knew then and we know now that he alone is worthy of such praise. That we exist because of him. That not only did he create, but he sustains and he's deserving of all of our praise. Do you know what worship means? you know the definition of worship? It means to prostrate oneself before one whose worth is acknowledged. Do you know the original word was worthship? That I will lay myself prostrate before the one who is worthy of it all. I wonder if to know him is to worship him. How well do we know him? We're like these elders, once again, who are withholding nothing from him. Are we holding anything back? Certainly we could say, is, is, are there material things that we're holding on to? But are there emotional things that we're holding on to? Is there an, is there an affection that we've given to another other than him? Is there trust that we're not placing in Him? What is it that we're holding back? I think that's what we're called to evaluate largely in this text, is to say, man, here's the example. And we know that this is what's going to happen. Charles Ryrie writes, based off the fact that one day, Christian, this will be a reality. He says, in heaven we will acknowledge this. Thus it is tragic that we don't do it sooner. Right? What if we had a glimpse of the glory of God? Would it capture our attention? What is our attention? What has our worship? And we've considered recently how we have the mind of Christ. even this evening, that we have, that there's sort of this heavenly perspective. 
And, and this perspective allows then for the most difficult of circumstances to be brought into perspective. To see here that, that, that when we see God in such glory, that it then means to worship Him with abandon. What's holding us back? Our worship isn't purely restricted to the time of praise and worship, but it's a big part of it. It's a big part of it. What's holding us back? Might we surrender that to Him? If we know our existence is dependent upon Him, the very fact that we're sitting here tonight means that He has a plan for you still. We say, okay, Lord, reveal, show, search my heart, Lord, and know me and reveal if there's anything in me that I'm holding back from you. Show me those things, Lord. I want to, I want to lay myself before you to cast my crowns at your feet. Show me what it is, Lord. Show me what's holding you back. Give me, Lord, a, give me, Lord more insight into who you are and what you're doing. Show me, Lord. Remember that song, Show Me Your Glory? Ask him. You know, often I pray that God would give me dreams that just like sort of wake me up and jar me and rattle me. It's like, Lord, do it. Show me some stuff, right? Reveal to me, Lord, more of who you are. As we go to his word and you pray and you spend time, you're, you're diligent in seeking him in his word and saying, Lord, show me more. That's what he calls us to. Father, we give you thanks, Lord, for our time together here this evening. We thank you for your word. And Lord, it's difficult for us. We are so limited, Lord, so finite in our understanding and in our perspective. But Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, that you're continuing to open our eyes to more, that you have more for us. That, Lord, we can come to you and say, Lord, show us your glory, show us more, that we want to know you more. That, Lord, you being holy, 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 infinitely holy, Lord, we're so far from that, but because of you, Lord Jesus, and what you've done, we're called holy. Lord, we're set apart. We're made righteous. We're justified. We're redeemed. We're restored. We're reconciled. And Lord, we're in this process of being made more like you, but we want more of you, Lord. We want to know this more. Lord, we look forward to what we will experience in your presence for eternity, what we'll experience there in the throne room of heaven as you call us up, Lord. Lord, we'd love to have some of that here now. To be a people, Lord, who recognize it's all about you. You deserve it all. You're worthy of it all. But there's nothing that we can rightfully withhold from you. And so, Lord, search our hearts and show us the things that we may be holding back. Whatever it is, Lord. Even in our worship, Lord, if it's just, if it's just a sense of... of of being reserved, Lord, and not, not worshiping you the way that we, we desire to in our hearts, Lord, then set us free from that. Lord, do this work in our hearts. Lord, here tonight and moving forward, we pray. We love you, Lord. Cause us to be a people who worship you with abandon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.